Listener Production. Yumi Steins wants women to have difficult conversations. Her award-winning podcast and new book, Ladies We Need to Talk, are doing just that. Yumi invites her guests to be forthright and funny, to share the most embarrassing and taboo aspects of their lives, and through that sharing, to feel better. I'm Yumi Steins. Ladies, we need to talk about never having an orgasm ever. In my conversation with Yumi today, we do exactly that. Yumi is candid and courageous, sharing everything from her troubled relationship with alcohol to growing up as a mixed race kid to her very fresh separation from the father of her two youngest children. You will find her honesty very refreshing and her insights enlightening. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Later, we'll be joined by Brooke Boney for The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But first, here is my conversation with journalist and writer Yumi Steins. Yumi Steins, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Thanks for having me, Jamila. Oh, she's got her hands up in the air. She's dancing. (laughs) She thinks it's going to be a good one. Yumi, you and I are both mixed race Aussie kids. Can you tell me about a time in your childhood when that influenced the way you behaved? Oh, all the time. Like I thought, um, for instance, men wearing cotton robes around was really normal. (laughs) (laughs) I thought sarongs were normal. Oh, yeah, sarongs on men, it's hot, right? So, yeah, when you realise that that's actually quite against the norm, that can be really shocking because it feels very normal and very home for you. Food is one that people talk about a lot. I was a a child before Japanese food became cool. Um, (laughs) So people were disgusted. Oh, raw fish, you disgusting savage. Like it was really, people were really poo-poo Japanese food until suddenly we were cool and that was the bonus. But I think... um, a lot, for a lot of kids who are mixed race, going back to the so-called home country is always a moment because you expect to fit in there and then you realise that you don't fit in there either. I know that you grew up in regional Victoria, Yumi, and I'm guessing there wasn't a whole lot of diversity about at the time. Do you think that impacted your willingness to celebrate your culture at school? Were you one of those kids who just tried to fit in and be the same as everyone else? Oh, 100%. And I remember I've had this this vivid memory of the teacher giving out an assignment where you had to do a deep dive into a different country. He handed out like a, a sort of like a book on each different country that was available. And I went to Denmark because I'd heard Danish men were hot. <laughs> so ridiculous. And he had Japan in his hands and he really wanted me to take Japan. But I was like, I'm not doing Japan. I know, I know all about Japan. Poo-poo Japan. It's something that I think about because... Were my mum given a chance to speak Japanese more, we would have picked up more Japanese, but it was just her. She was a silo on her own in a huge desert where there was no other Japanese culture to sort of exchange and share with. So tell me about, you're coming to the end of high school. What did you want to do? What did you want to be? Did you have a picture of what life was going to look like? Was it a life similar to your parents or was it a life that was very different? I don't know. I think in a lot of ways, I thought I was a loser at the end of high school. In a lot of ways, I thought I did want a life similar to my parents in that they were sort of self-employed and they didn't have bosses. And I thought yeah. that was the the honourable thing to do, to be the master of your destiny. That was cooler. 
And then I went into jobs where you didn't have to be the boss and I found that actually a really big relief to just be able to knock off at the end Mm. of the day and not think about work and not worry and ruminate. But at the end of high school, I think I just sort of thought I've squandered my God-given gifts of intelligence and whatever. Um, I haven't got good marks. I, I was never very studious. I always found the authority of teachers really, really irritating and just really pissed me off on a very basic level. Why are you trying to tell me what to do? What's qualified you? Oh, your degree. Oh, sorry. (laughs) But um, yeah, I just thought, look, if I can avoid being homeless and support myself, that's sort of, that's the best that's going to happen to me. Like that's not, I'm not trying to diss the dream. I think that's a really good aim, right? But you know, I think if you grabbed a lot of teenagers today at 16, 17, they'd spell out a pretty grand plan for what they wanted in life that, I don't know, probably involves TikTok fame, right, at least. But I think a lot of teenagers graduate now with a sense of destiny and a sense of trying to be unique and to stand out. Do you think it was a generational thing that sort of kept the dreams more humble or was it more about you? I think, um, I'm not sure if I agree about teenagers, you know, in 2021, I've got two of them, one's 19 and one's 17. So they're deep in that and they're accomplished, they're traveled, they're intelligent and they they can function in society, but they both just want to get by. And that's what they feel they're entitled to is basic survival, maybe. And they do, and hopefully not relying too much on mum paying for their rent or their, their grocery bills. But I think a lot of the malaise that teenage school leavers feel is about not fitting into that 1% of really high achievers. You feel like rubbish and you feel like I'll just work in a factory, I'll be an abattoir worker, I'll make coffee for the rest of my life and that's that's actually my destiny. It's a, it's a feeling of great powerlessness that I felt and, and I felt that a lot of people I was among felt as well. You have a podcast with the ABC. It's called Ladies We Need to Talk and one of the things I love about it is that it tackles stigma and taboos and it really embraces conversations about the messy of parts of life that we often don't have conversations about even with people that we're really close to. I wanted to ask why you were driven to unpack stuff nobody else was talking about it and what about you makes you interested and happy to talk about the stuff no one else wants to talk about? Well Jamila I didn't know how nitty gritty would get you know and if someone had asked me to list the taboo topics that affect women back when the show started um five seasons ago it would have been a pretty short list yeah but as time has gone on it's just gotten longer and longer and I really do feel it's corny and it's so cliche to say but do I do it, say it. as a mom of daughters I've got three daughters and one son that I really do have an obligation to do my best for them and their contemporaries and myself, you know. And every time I do an episode of Ladies We Need to Talk, I learn something that I didn't know. And I think, like, it's like chafing against your squeamishness, that show, because the more I rub against the the facts and the research and the first-person stories of something that's quite painful or excruciating or just embarrassing to talk about, my own shame gets worn down and it's smoothed out and I actually have less resistance to speaking these truths and to finding those painful, excruciating things easy to talk about. What were some of the topics that were most uncomfortable for you to talk about? Oh, so many. One that I still find hard to even raise, and it's in the book that we've written around the podcast, it's about painful sex. So 
it's just what it sounds like when sex hurts for a woman. That is just such a never spoken about idea. Mm. I think the the very best friends could have so much that they share but still not share that particular detail of their lives. There's a lot of self-blame with it. There's really not much medical support. So if you're experiencing something that is actually really super common as painful sex, it's very isolating. You feel all alone. You don't know how to talk about And then when we start like breaking that open and unpacking it and people do talk about it, you do find that there are actually, there are solutions. So that, that was a, a one that I found really hard to talk about. And I still find it hard to kind of say, oh, we're doing, <laughs> we're doing this. It's going to be a hoot because it's not going to be, it's no. not going to be a hoot, is it? Um, but but it, you can offer, often with this stuff, you can offer a solution. And if you don't mind me sharing, I can tell you what the, the main cause. Yeah, please. Of painful sex in heterosexual situations is that the woman's not aroused. It's really not that complicated, but we've sort of been conditioned and part of the um, virginity myth enforces that, that sex is meant to hurt. We're we're taught Mm. that, we're shown that. It's depicted in movies, it's sung about, that for a girl you're meant to submit to painful sex and that's part of the deal of being heterosexual. But if you research it and you read about it, actually that is not true in any circumstances any, including your first time. So unless pain is your kink, you know, and we say more power to that, sex should never, ever hurt. So hearing that, internalising that and kind of going, okay, what have I actually endured because I was ignorant up to this point in my life and how can I share this with as many young women and females and people so that they don't have to go through it as well and think that this is normal? What a gift. Like what I wouldn't have given for you to have said that to me as a teenager, <laughs> I hadn't oh. had that information earlier. I know, and I've gone to schools, Jamila, and said that to school groups of year 11 and 12s and just sort of felt the ricochet of this information yeah. just bounce through the, the auditorium, you know, as they're like, somebody just say that? Did the, is that a real thing? Can we really accept that sex should never hurt? You're damn right you can. You mentioned that you're releasing a book of the same name. It's also called Ladies We Need to Talk. The podcast has been so successful and it's reached a whole lot of people. What can you achieve in book form that maybe you couldn't using a podcast? Yeah, you can reread things, which I I know you do. You know, you're like, what was that point? I just need to get that again. Or you can use your phone and take a screenshot of the words that you want to read over or share with your friends. So that's part of it. It's also diagrams are really helpful when you're talking about things like vulvas or reproduction, even hormones. it's, It's really helpful to have a picture. And we also found that this was a bit of a full circle moment for the podcast because we have been around for for more than five years. When we broadcast, you get feedback, but it's too late to include that in the podcast because it's gone to air. So there's a lot of full circle moments when we can say, oh, this was a response and we can weave it into the text. We did an episode about unusual vaginas and sort of things that you might not expect happen in that area of a woman. And a case study that we spoke to who, who volunteered herself, she was in her 60s and all her life she'd had trouble um, managing her period. Like she'd put a tampon in, but she'd still leak blood into her knickers like the next moment and doctors would say you're not doing it right or you're not changing your tampon often enough and she was like I definitely am but couldn't get listened to for years so not until she was in her 60s a friend said to her I've got this really good gynecologist you should see she specializes in women and and our subject said 
isn't that all gynecologists? Shouldn't they all be good at that? Anyway, so she went to someone and discovered that she actually had, it's called uterus didelphus, where she has two uteruses and two vaginas sort of sitting side by side. So one would menstruate and the other would be ignored and would be bleeding all over the place. So that there was just an, an explanation. Wow. Yeah, of 60 years of misinformation, pain, you know, struggling and why is this, what's wrong with me? So this went to air, Jamila, and then, of course, somebody heard it who was like, that's me, oh, my God, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. So she hadn't known what was going on. She hears her own story being told, can go to the gyno with some information and said, please look for this condition because I think I have it, and what do you know, she's diagnosed with the same thing. I mean, I'm going to sound even wankier than you were worried you would before when I say there is such power in sharing stories, right? Because it just makes people feel normal yeah, or even discover things about themselves that, you know, a medical system's let them down, to be honest. If you could go 60 years without a diagnosis in that space, that's, that's a real question about how our medical systems are approaching people. Totally. Let's jump back in the timeline of your life a little bit, Yumi. Tell me about the Yumi who fell pregnant and had a baby for the first time and what she was like and how motherhood changed her. Oh, wow. Well, she was mad. She was like, she was like a loose unit. (laughs) I had been um, hitchhiking around Australia. I thought I was going to be a loser for the rest of my life and just work jobs where, you know, you you could drink on the job basically, (laughs) like bartending or chefing, both of which I was quite good at. But um, I got this job at Channel V. And I realised that this is a swerve in my timeline, a massive swerve, and I'm going to stick to this new path for as long as I can get away with it because this is cool. So I got a TV job on national telly getting paid to go to things that I used to spend my hard-earned money to pay to get into myself, like a big day out or, a you know, a rock yeah. concert. Or, and then I'd get to interview people and I was so interested so I did you know I did good work but I was also going to all the industry parties and drinking like crazy and um, just not really having any restraint put on me which is perfect when you are 25 like that's a good life but I, I met this guy who was in a band and sexy and we hit it off on our first night together he ended up not leaving for three days so you know it was one of those hot romance um two weeks later we went away to Stradbroke Island off the coast of Brisbane and I conceived a baby but I didn't know so so it was like a whirlwind fling that turned into a seven-year relationship because we made a baby and I was like I'm damn right I'm having this baby because I'm wild rebel (laughs) I'll just do what I want with my body and I had my little nook and um, immediately I had to stop drinking. I, I remember stubbing out the cigarette I was smoking as we were going to get a pregnancy test at the local GP uh, and thinking this might be the last time I do this. But it was a huge kick up the bum because I had to grow up, you know, and I, yeah. and I had someone to take care of and I had a suddenly like a home instead of, um, you know, a share house or whatever. It really helped me and I, I've often thought that Little and Nook saved my life because I needed to kind of come back down to earth pretty urgently. You touched on alcohol a whole bunch of times there. I know you've spoken previously about having a complicated relationship with alcohol at times in your life. Did motherhood end it? Did that sort of draw a line for you or did it come back into your life? 
motherhood didn't end my relationship with alcohol, but that time that I fell pregnant with my first kid and the subsequent ones, they were the first proper big breaks I'd had from drinking since about the age of 13. It was a bit of a reckoning to feel your body feel so good and to attend parties pregnant but unable to drink and sort of see how that felt. I found the early years of a baby's life really tough. And that was a time when when I think women are particularly vulnerable to the allure of alcohol because you can do it at home, you can do it in private. Um, yeah. It is a relief from, from the relentlessness of parenting a baby and it's very easy to slip right into um, to being quite addicted and nobody noticing. I'm interested in you saying nobody noticing because I think about the conversations I've had in my life and the stories I see in the news, for example, and I feel like we talk about men and alcoholism a lot more than we talk about women and alcoholism. And as a result, I think a lot of women don't necessarily think that it applies to them. Mm. Do you think that's fair? Oh, for sure. I think that 100% applies to women. And I have friends, Jamila, who I flatly deny having a drinking problem and I've just watched them drink a whole bottle and I know it's not an unusual occurrence. There is a definite dissonance in what we perceive as alcoholism and what people do in the privacy of their own homes. And it's willful, but it's also, you're right, there's also a bit of a cultural thing feeding into that as well. Alcoholics do not want to admit that they're alcoholics. Mm. It's just the worst idea because then their alcohol will start to be taken away from them and that's something that is actually quite frightening. Just recently you've announced that you and your partner are splitting up. What's that going to mean for you and those four gorgeous kids of yours? Uh, Hopefully not much of a change except that their parents have different homes. It's so weird because recently I spent a lot of time with my first ex, so Ben, the father, the musician father of my first two kids. The rock star. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I was up in Queensland with my family because we were trying to avoid the Sydney lockdown. Ben lives up there. So he was, you know, probably the person I'm closest to up there. So we actually saw each other a fair bit. I'm great friends with his wife, who is an excellent person, and his new toddler. And I really felt like I did think this is happening as a beacon for me to look to, to know that I can be as good and solid with my new ex as I can with my old ex and love our children together and treat each other with kindness and respect. And it took a a lot of years for us to get there. And I suspect it will take me and my new ex a lot of years to get there. But that is actually like it's my North Star at the moment. We all look for role models, right, when things get difficult or things are tricky. You've got yourself as a role model. That's a pretty good way to be. (laughs) Tell me about how you safeguard your mental health in tough times because I feel like increasingly this sort of public discussion of self-care is a lot about yoga and candles and bubble baths, none of which help me with my mental health, maybe the yoga actually. What do you do as a way to kind of practice being healthy, especially when times are difficult. You've got a relationship breakdown in the middle of a pandemic with four kids involved. That's complex stuff. Yeah, it's really so complex. I think every mental health expert says something along the lines of go for a walk or get outside, get your heart rate up in conjunction with other treatments, therapy and and medication. But for me, that has been something that I've really held on to since I think the birth of my second kid, I had a bit of postnatal depression then. So 17 Mm. years ago to really incorporate exercise into your daily routine and be militant about it 
it's so boring, Jamila, like to be that that person who's like, no, 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 I must do my run or I must go to the gym, I must do yoga. But it's bloody important. It's as important yeah. as taking your medication. And if you are militant about it, you don't waver, you're kind of at a good steady brain kind of balance it's much harder to send you off and it's much harder to be derailed taking those endorphins like medication every single day and being a massive asshole about it. Like, no, I'm not going to go chat with you on the phone or whatever. I'm going to go to the gym and get sweaty. And that's important to me. It's so useful to me. That really, really works. I've found particularly during periods of being sick the last few years that one of the hardest things has been when my mental health has been playing up and I can't exercise and that that sort of frustration of knowing what the solution is and knowing what's going to help and not being able to do it is so frustrating, I suppose. Mm. When do you feel at your most powerful? I, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty good at interviewing people. I think so. And being an empathic, gentle listener, which often is about knowing when to shut the hell up, really, and following people, what, what they're saying, making that really important and the most important thing that's happening at that time. And that's, that's powerful for me. It's powerful for the person who's speaking as well. And I think that's something that others can learn as well. If they're, they're not used to doing that, they can be better listeners. <laughs> you can always be a better listener. And that's a real goal, I think, for me ongoing to always try and be a better listener. Most powerful, I think I just feel like my two older daughters who are 17 and 19, they and I have a really great trust where they know I will never bullshit them. So they can ask me anything that they want. I will do my best to tell them the truth. And if I don't know the truth, I'll, I'll tell them that as well. And I think that it's created an unshakable bond between us. And I feel like so strong in that to know that I'm going to be this wizened old ancient matriarch covered in wrinkles well into my 80s and 90s and just be still rock solid with these amazing bitches that I love that are so cool and hopefully they have their own amazing lives that I can admire and cheerlead this is a very powerful thing I can see you becoming that matriarch and she sounds awesome I hope I can take her for a cup of coffee one day Yumi thank you for ladies we need to talk the podcast we look forward to the book and thanks for being on the weekend briefing thanks Jamila That's it for my conversation with Yumi Steins. Her new book is Ladies We Need to Talk, which is based on the podcast of the same name. It's everything that we are not saying about bodies, health, sex and relationships. The weekend list is on its way, so don't go away. And now it is time for the weekend list and I am thrilled that we are being joined by Brooke Boney. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you, darling? I am so well and so excited to hear what you are going to recommend for us because honestly, everyone's getting a little bit tired of all of my cooking recipes. So I think it's your turn to spice things up and bring us something to do, watch, read or listen to. What do you got? You know how part of my very cool job on the Today Show is that I get to preview things before um, everyone else? Yes. I've already seen Eternals, the Marvel movie, and It's so good. And okay, let me just preface it by saying that you do not need to be like obsessed with the Marvel Cinematic Universe to understand what's going on. Okay, good. But it's directed by Chloe Zhao, who did Nomadland and won the Oscar for it. So she's incredible. She's obsessed with like these big landscapes and like sort of broad cinematic pictures. And the lead is Gemma Chan. And she is such 
a sweetheart. I've interviewed her a couple of times, once in person in Singapore and once recently for this, and she's just gorgeous. One thing about the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that they do diversity in a way that's like really cool and really like they're woke without trying. Like it's not tokenistic. Totally. They just understand the value of including people from like lots of different nationalities, religions, ethnicities, whatever, to appeal to bigger audiences. And they do it so, so well. Like Taika Waititi is one of their favoured directors at the moment as well. And so they're funny, they're clever, they're charming, they make you emotional. Definitely go and see it. We're Eternals. We came here 7,000 years ago. To protect humans from the deviants. Why didn't you guys help fight Thanos? Or any war, all the other terrible things throughout history? We were instructed not to interfere in any human conflicts unless deviants are involved. By who? That sounds amazing. You've totally sold me. In the meantime, folks, while us plebs are waiting to actually be able to see (laughs) the film, I am going to go recommend that you all watch Vigil, which is on Binge. It is a police procedural set on a submarine. And if I had read those words alone, I would have Mm. run screaming into the other room. Not my thing at all. But this is really, really good. So basically a crew member is found dead on board the HMS Vigil, which is a Trident nuclear submarine, and the Scottish police are investigating the murder. But because this submarine is doing important patrol-y stuff – not super au fait with submarines. Anyway, it's got important job to do. It can't stop doing its submarine thing. So it can't like just come to the surface so the police can investigate. So the police have to go into the submarine. It's one woman, she's a detective, she goes in on her own and she has to live underwater in this submarine while she's investigating the murder, knowing that the murderer is on board the submarine still because they're down there (gasps) under the water. And it is so good. I've been having a couple of, like a couple of kind of water-filled nightmares where I'm drowning as a result but I feel like a more sensible person that wouldn't happen to but 10 out of 10 good and there's a lot of actor crossovers from great police shows and also interestingly from Game of Thrones I suspect it is wildly inaccurate on the subject of submarines but I don't care about that it is very watchable well do you know what there's Game of Thrones actors in Eternals as well so Kit Harrington and Richard Madden So the two brothers from the north. This is like a a Game of Thrones themed recommendation. I love it. Well, Kit Harrington's in Game of Thrones and in real life, the redheaded girl that dies, I forget what she's called in Game of Thrones, she's in this one. Oh, my god! But she's safely on the land, everyone. You don't need to worry about her. Brooke, what else have you got? Okay, so the other thing that I was thinking, and this might seem like incredibly obvious, but um, I bought a bunch of magazines uh, a couple of weeks ago because I had to go to the news agency to pick up a package And I came home and I was looking through Monocle and it was the city's guide. And I was just like totally enthralled in this, like, you know, looking at cities that I haven't been to for two years, but also like looking at the way that outsiders view our cities. So like hearing them talk about how wonderful Melbourne is and how, you know, Sydney is one of the most picturesque cities in the world, but no one can afford to live here because it's so stupidly expensive. (laughs) And so I loved looking at all of that, but I think also just having someone with excellent taste just compile a bunch of stuff together, whether it's clothes, whether it's like candles or travel, is so enriching. I love magazines so much. I love good magazines so much. And it makes me sad that so many of them are failing and they're 
Like there's something that you can look at for hours and hours that transports you to someone else. It's compiled by people with excellent taste. And I feel like it cannot be replicated by things like Instagram or Facebook or other online, um, you know, viewing platforms. I like that curation element of magazines where I don't feel like I'm just getting the whole internet on my phone and I'm having to sift through it to find the good stuff. I like the idea that someone sat down and been so so thoughtful. And you know what? I haven't picked up a magazine in years, literally, because I haven't been on an aeroplane. And that's my mag time. Do yourself a favour, go and get Monocle. All right. It's so good this month. It's so good, Jamila. You won't regret it. I'm on it. And then my final recommendation, folks, is a slightly self-indulgent one, but I promise it's good. I have been hosting a mini series called The Secret Life of Carers. It's a podcast and it's being organised by Carers Australia. And the whole podcast is spending time with carers of people with really serious mental illness. And I want to recommend to you one episode and it's an episode called Meredith carers in cars getting coffee. And I got to have this extraordinary conversation with Meredith who her daughter has a really complex series of mental illnesses and she's a teenager. And in order to get her to go to school, Meredith parks outside the school all day for six hours so that when her daughter is panicking or not coping, she runs outside and sees mum and often her mum can talk her into going back into school and trying again. Sometimes she can't. And Meredith has been doing this literally for years, every day, sitting outside her daughter's school. And over the last year or so, she's discovered she's not the only one, that there are actually parents of kids with serious mental illness who sit outside their kids' school day in, day out, and they formed like a kind of informal network and they drop coffee off to each other and they call each other on the phone so they've got company. And this episode just Meredith herself blew me away. She's a psychologist herself. So she comes to the podcast with an enormous amount of knowledge and she really takes you inside her world and her experience. And they're my favorite kinds of podcasts when you feel like you've got a glimpse of how someone's life is. And in this case, a really difficult life. And I think when it comes to mental illness, we think a lot about the people experiencing mental illness as we should. But now and then, I think it's important that we take pause and think about the people in the circle around them whose lives are also hugely impacted and in Meredith's case completely changed from what it used to be. That is so unbelievable to think about spending that much time in your car and then to see the other parents doing it too. God, parents are incredible, aren't they? I know, right? Made me think, would I do that for anyone? My only moment was, yeah, I'd do that for my kid. That's probably the only person I would do that for. Literally the only person because you probably wouldn't do it for your partner but you would do it for your child. He'll be right. (laughs) He'll he'll sort himself out, I'm sure. That is all we've got time for on the weekend briefing today. Thank you so much, Brooke Boney. If you cannot get enough of Brooke's recommendations, then I have some wonderful news for you because Brooke and Linda's Dream Club podcast is also on the listener network and you can hear Brooke and Linda talk about culture and entertainment. They are the sublime tastemakers in my life. I love listening to them and you can catch them there as well. If you can't get enough of the briefing also, you can also find us on Listener or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, why not leave us a cheeky little rating and a very kind review because it'll help my soul into the next week. If you want more of the briefing, then you can tune in Monday morning next week from 6am where the crew will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.